And to me, that tells me, don't vote because our policies are good. Vote because if you don't vote for us, the country is at stake. To me, that is bad policy hiding behind fatalism. Don't tell me to vote because the country depends on it. Tell me the reasons why I should vote for you. Give me policies. Give me a reason why I, as a not yet citizen, but let's say if I was a citizen, <laughs> why I, as a citizen, should be voting for you. Right. And it, it'll bite him in the ass, too. It'll bite the Democrats in the ass because then what happens when you don't have good policy? What are you voting mm-hmm. for? My name's Adela Kohav. And my name is Mariam Waba. We are the Daughters of Diaspora. And this is an Americanish Conversation. Welcome back to Americanish. This week, we are talking all things elections. On November 2nd, 2022, President Joe Biden gave a speech ahead of the midterm elections. In the speech, he reiterated that this election season is different from any other. He uses an interesting rhetoric, which we will try to attempt to break down in this episode. Before we get started, we want to reiterate that we are not political experts or commentators. We are just two young people who deeply care about this country and its future. One of us, myself, can vote. The other, Adela, is working very hard to get the right to vote. Very hard. We are working (laughs) very hard to get that right. That's right. The theme of his speech, democracy. In fact, he uses the word democracy 39 times in just under three minutes. Adela, you've both listened and read the speech. Is there anything that stood out to you? Yes. Um, First off, because he, he did say the word democracy 39 times, and I understand that the theme of the speech was democracy. But he gave the speech ahead of an upcoming election. And even though he used the word democracy 39 times, He used the word economy once and never used the word inflation. And as a person living in this country, listening to the president of the United States address the general public, I found it very weird that he didn't talk about inflation at all. And and the economy, you know, line was really just a throwaway. He didn't say, now let's just address the economy and then talk about the economy. Not at all. He he really only kept it to um, democracy. And um, it's not exactly what I expected to hear. Um, Not exactly that I'm mad about it, but it wasn't what I was expecting to hear because what the speech actually ended up being was the way he opened the speech was basically talking about January 6th. And he was talking about how democracy is on the ballot this election um, because of what started on January 6th. And then he started talking about election denial. And I, I agree. I think that um, democracy is on the ballot this election in a way, but I don't think it's about January 6th necessarily. Um, he, he, he gave a great quote here. He said, a vote is not a partisan tool to be counted when it helps your candidates and to be tossed aside when it doesn't. And I completely agree with that, right? A, a vote is not a partisan tool. And a vote doesn't just count if it worked for you and not count if it doesn't work for you. And here he he clearly was speaking to Republicans who, um, you know, denied the election results of 2020. But what Joe Biden fails to acknowledge in this speech is that the left has also partaken in election denial, right? 2016, there was mass election denial. Stacey Abrams in Georgia, there was mass election denial. So when I hear that line, I'm just wondering here, is he saying this in a way, um, you know, to Republicans saying, don't 
you know, deny this election? Or is he telling Democrats, hey, no matter what happens this election, you've got to accept it? Right. Right. The the his lack of focus on the speech, and I, I get it, like speeches have to have a theme, a central one that you stick to. But for him to completely sideline the economy and inflation, something that every American across every state, across every socioeconomic socioeconomic class is facing to this day, like every single day, that that didn't exactly sit right with me. And, and especially in, in light of the mass uh, firings that have been happen, happening in the last couple of days that are especially impacting people in cities and, and younger people. On, on your January 6th point, um, I found it very funny that uh, in the transcription of the speech, uh, they keep referring to it as the big lie, capital B, capital L. Have you ever seen that before? That's the first time I've ever seen January 6th, or, or excuse me, the election denial be uh, referred to as the big lie with big capital B and big capital uh, L. I don't think it's the first time I've seen it, but I can't pinpoint where I've seen it. Like, I've, I've definitely heard people say like, oh, the big lie that the election was stolen. But I think that now he's trying to like brand it like the big lie. This is the big which, lie. <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. You, you, why are you throwing, maybe I'm not looking at it the, in, in the, the most intellectual way, but it seems to me like if you want to move on from something and not let it hamper you and, and you know, let it haunt you, you give it a name, you give it a capital name, a, the big lie. Well, actually, that takes me back to the January 6th commission. Every time that I hear about the January 6th commission and the subpoena for the January 6th commission, I'm like, really uninterested. Does does that make it, like, why am I so uninterested? Like, yes, it was alarming. Like, we all saw January 6th. We all saw what happened. We were like, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. But, like, it's not at the forefront of my mind. I don't wake up and say, yo, democracy is at stake today because January 6th, <laughs> Back in January 6th, a couple of years ago, like, yo, that was crazy. Like, I don't know what, maybe it's something that has to do with me and my perception of reality. But like, if you're going to name something the big lie, I don't know if I'd put 2020's election as the big lie. I feel like there's been other lies told here in the US <laughs> that have been bigger. I, I don't know if that one would be the big lie. But um, yeah, very interesting. I, I, I think like going back to like how you said focusing, like not only did this you know, completely sidetracked the economy and inflation. But also when he focused the idea of election denial, he only focused it on the right because he led into right. it talking about January 6th. He never at any point zoomed out and refocused his lens to say democracy is at stake because of wide election denial. So either mm. side should not be denying the election. You know what I mean? Right, right. And, and that's a great segue into... Like what policies did did he tell us why we should be voting Democrats today on Tuesday? He did. So I want to quote Joe Biden here. He says, we must vote knowing what's at stake and not just the policy of the moment, but the institutions that have held us together as we've sought a more perfect union are also at stake. And to me, that tells me don't vote because our policies are good. Vote because if you don't vote for us, the country is at stake. And to me, that's <laughs> fatalism. To me, yeah. that is bad policy hiding behind fatalism. Don't tell me to vote because the country depends on it. Tell me to vote. Why am I voting for you? Tell me the reasons why I should vote for you. Give me policies. Give me a reason why I, as a not yet citizen, but let's say if I was a citizen, <laughs> why I, as a citizen, 
should be voting for you. Right. Why should I be casting my vote? And I, I know that this is not a campaign speech. I, I, I did not misunderstand the purpose of the speech. But if there's an election coming up, shouldn't you be telling Americans the opposite? Shouldn't you be saying, vote on the policies? Don't vote on your inherent visceral reaction, but vote on the policy. Don't vote because you think that there's a fatalistic understanding of the world, but vote on the policies. I think it's very dangerous when the president himself is telling you not to vote on the policies. Absolutely. And it, it'll bite him in the ass, too. It'll bite the Democrats in the ass because then what happens when you don't have good policy? What are you voting mm -hmm. for? And, and he talks yeah. extensively about democracy. Like we said, 39 democracies in one, in one three-minute sitting. And he talks, he tries to tell us what it means, how to preserve it, institutions. And when he and other Democrats talk about democracy, what they're really talking about is the institutions that ensure that every American gets a vote and every American gets a say in who gets to rule. What they're also saying without actually saying it is that only one party can protect and save these institutions, that party being the Democrats. If so facto, mm -hmm. there's only one party that's committed to democracy and therefore we only have one choice. And, and here he really like, I don't know if he and his people realize it, but he's, he's presenting the people with a real dilemma because in telling us how to preserve democracy, he's telling us we've already lost it because there's only one choice. Yeah, that's, that's super, super interesting. That's, so, you know, it, it, it's amazing that you're pointing that out because, you know, just, just to rephrase what you said, if he's saying, if you don't vote for us, democracy is lost, and he's giving the false choice of democracy, then that begs the question, have we already lost democracy? Yep. Yeah. How democratic is the system if you're telling me you're the only one that can save it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I talk about the arguments. Yeah. You know, vote for me because it's not the country and the preservation of democracy is at stake. Right, right. Vote for me because you don't have a choice. That that doesn't sound quite democratic to me. Is, is this a new rhetoric, Adela? I, I think you know a little bit more about American policy or American politics than I do. Is this something that has happened before? Have Democrats, Republicans, or, or any other party um, used this tactic before in midterm or presidential elections, kind of telling you that I'm the only choice? So I can't speak to, um, you know, American history broadly, but I've been living in the country since 2001, and I have not heard a party's primary argument to be vote for me instead of the other guys because the sake of democracy or the sake of the country depends on it. Usually, like, for example, even like after war times, it would be like, vote for me because I have a better rebuilding effort or vote for me so we don't go into imminent war. Vote for me so our children can have food even. But vote for me or else there is no more democracy. This is the first time I hear it. You didn't hear this during the Bush election. You didn't hear it during, you know, Obama-Hillary. Um, or I guess it was Obama-Trump. I'm just thinking in terms of Democratic primaries. Right. Um, you didn't think, hear it in terms of obama um, and anyone else, you know, I, I just don't think I've heard this argument before, this specific argument of, I don't have any policy points to point you to, but vote for me because democracy. Right. And it seems like that's, it's, it's treading in dangerous waters because you're setting really weird precedents for how people yeah. decide to vote, which brings us to our next topic, which is, um, and your time, the New York Times conducted a, a small survey-esque study, I would call it, 
um, and they have this small graphic on their the homepage of their website. And the title reads, what's driving your vote? And um, this has always been a really fascinating topic for me. What factors make people decide who they vote for? I had a uh, professor in college. He was a Middle East history professor, policy professor. He, he covered a lot of topics and he was a real hard ass. He, I hated the way he graded my papers because, well, I won't get into it. I digress. But um, he was he was a brilliant guy. <laughs> and um, he mainly, he was an Egyptian Jew. So he was from the Arab world. His family was expelled uh, when Egypt expelled its Jews in 56. So he had a very interesting perspective on the world and the U.S. And he just lived through a lot. And uh, we'd mainly talk you know, Middle East things because he, you know, was the professor for it, but he also had a genuine personal connection to it. And, he you know, I did too. So we just spend hours talking about random things that were on either of our minds. And um, I think I was in one of his classes during uh, the uh, Donald Trump election. And right before the election, he just was curious what the class was thinking, because most of us were of voting age. And he wanted to know what made us decide who to vote or rather who not to vote for. And um, in conversation and dialogue, he, he just throws this thing out there that I thought was that has shaped how I think about voting. And he said, there's usually like three or four things, maybe two or three, two or three things that help people or, or that make people decide who to vote for. Um, and he goes, well, what you guys think I care about foreign policy for when it comes to voting? And I, in my head, I'm like, yeah, of course, you're a Middle East foreign policy professor. Of course, you care about foreign policy. Of course, it's going to dictate how you vote. It's like, no, I'm a, I'm a senior citizen living in New York. I care about my health insurance and I care about my social security. Those two things decide how I'm going to vote. Mm -hmm. Forget Middle East foreign policy. Those things, you know, I spend hours on them and I teach it to you guys, but they're not going to affect my day to day life. And I don't know why I hadn't seen that before, but it really helped illuminate how I look at democracy how i look at our, our electoral system our voting system and from that point on i've kind of spent a lot of time thinking about what are my two or three things what are my two or three factors for deciding who i should vote for which is why this new york times survey-esque study uh was really fascinating to me a few of the factors say, yeah yeah i was gonna ask you can you tell us according to the new york times <laughs> What are the leading issues on young voters' minds? This is a really funny thing, but I don't know why anytime somebody says the New York Times, I always think the failing New York Times because of what Donald Trump did to my brain. But the successful New York Times chose to highlight in the survey a few factors, including climate change, election reform, abortion access, and immigration policy. Those were kind of the four factors that stood out in these quotes that they published for people voting uh, for who to, they vote for. And I'm wondering, like, what do we make of this? These four things, cl again, the climate change, election reform, abortion access, and immigration policy. Do you have any thoughts, Adela? Yeah, so the first thing that stood out to me was selective sampling, right? Because this was New York Times surveyed their readers. And when I saw this, I was like, are New York Times readers out of touch with reality? Am I out of touch with reality? Are we living in the same city, right? Because of those four things, right? Climate change, election reform, abortion access, immigration policy. Four top issues 
You're not going to talk about inflation. Mm -hmm. You're not going to talk about rising crime on your streets. Like I have to say, like I wake up and I'm more worried about rising crime than climate change. Like do New York Times readers just not take the subway? Do they not see the crimes on the subway? Just in the last two months, we've had three, four, five incidents right? So it, it makes me wonder, are we living in the same city? Like you have to choose four things. And these are the four things that were on your mind. Do you not buy avocados? Do you not buy any groceries? Are your moms still buying groceries for you? Uh, it, it was really confusing to me right. because I, I have to say, I, I don't know if any of these really factor into any of my top three. Yeah. I don't think they factor into my top three too. And I was trying to justify them, right? I was trying to be a good person in whatever way I could be. And and it's not like these things don't matter. Climate change obviously matters. It's freaking 70 degrees in November and sunny. Um, abortion access, immigration policy, election reform, these things are important. But the whole point of this anecdote that I was shared about my professor is that there's things that he cares about. The Middle East, he's from there, his... He has family there. He's grew up there and he teaches it. It's basically his whole life. But when it comes down to it, the things that were affecting his day-to-day -day living and survival were his access to healthcare and his social security after he retires mm -hmm. from being a professor. So it's not that these, we're not, it's, we're not saying these things don't matter. We're saying there's things that are more imminent. The fact that most American families are struggling to make their paycheck last a full month. The fact that young people are like me and you are struggling to find jobs out of college and when we do find jobs we can't afford new york rent and we have to live with 19 roommates in a small square in in brooklyn um mm -hmm. and yeah i mean you beg the question of are these people living in the same city we are the people that they surveyed and if if uh, i'm assuming the new york times surveyed a very niche socioeconomic class of folks based on these responses because if i'm a somewhat wealthy or somewhat upper mid to upper class uh mid-age woman or man in manhattan then i can not worry about 17 dollars salads and seven dollar gas of a uh, gallon of gas and i can worry about climate change um this is this is an important point and a difficult point to articulate because we don't want to make it seem like we don't care about these issues. We do. They're just not top of mind when thinking about who to vote for. Does that make any sense, Daryl? I think it makes perfect sense. Like I have friends that have gotten married and they're thinking about having children, right? And with that, they're thinking about maybe finally achieving the American dream of buying a house or buying an apartment, right? So they can have a more permanent way of living when they start building their families. Right. And I was talking to a friend recently and she was telling me that interest rates, like to get a mortgage to buy a house or an apartment, the interest rates are so high and fluctuating so much that she is scared of doing this kind of planning. She said, how am I supposed to plan? Because a house or apartment that might be in my budget is no longer in my budget because of the interest rates. Mm. So to me, it's, it's like what you were saying before about your professor. There's so many ideological points I'd love to vote on those lines for, you know, like I'd love to vote according to my ideological points. Mm -hmm. but going back to what Biden said, where he said, you know, vote for democracy, don't vote for policy. No, <laughs> let's vote for policy. Right. Let's look at policy. Let's look at the actual imminent issues that are affecting my everyday life, your everyday life. I can't afford $17 salads anymore. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It only leaves. How can they charge me $17 salads? <laughs> 
I have to move out of the city. I can't do it. That's also why I have to say, I'm not exactly a New York Times reader. I know that a dollar a week doesn't sound like a lot, but I, do you know how many salads I can buy with that? <laughs> if you go 17 <laughs> weeks without New York Times and you can afford one salad, just say. Wow. God bless America. <laughs> God bless. Um, um, that actually takes me to uh, voting trends because there there were two demographics that typically, that typically vote left that are leaning more towards the right. Not that they're leaning towards right and there's this red wave among these groups, but the Democrats have lost a lot of percentage points among suburban women and Hispanic voters. And I think it's because um, Democrats have decided to use social issues to paint a wide stroke brush over what the Democratic Party is. So like, for example, suburban women, right? Why are they leaving or less enthusiastic about the Democratic Party? I think that when you think about women's issues, especially the Democratic Party, when they think about women's issues, they think about the word abortion, right? And I'm sure a lot of women care about abortion. I'm sure that, um, you know, especially for women who are in New York, single or young professionals or recently married or dating, abortion is probably a very big issue in their minds, right? That's, that's their right to choose. But if you look at a suburban woman who's already had, you know, a couple of her children, maybe she's having more, maybe not. Her woman's issue, quote unquote, isn't about abortion. Her primary issue is about her kids' education or about buying groceries. So, so when it comes to you know the idea of oh, I know how to get the female vote, I'm going to talk about abortion. That's not really going to work with these women because they're they're not necessarily at risk, quote unquote, in that yes, it might be an issue that's important to them, but it's not at the forefront of their daily concerns. And that that's the danger of like broad stroking women's issues or immigrant issues or minority issues is that you lose some nuance. You lose the the things that really sway that vote. Um, is this yeah. across the board to any other group? Um, I don't know if across the board exactly, but Hispanic voters have also been moving away from the Democratic Party. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. I think, um, number one, Hispanic people, Hispanic immigrants have come to this country in search of a better life, in search of a better America. And then suddenly they're hearing from Democrats that America is a terrible place. So I think that number one um, gets in the way of their enthusiasm. But number two, the Democratic Party has branded itself as the party for certain things. Now, Hispanic voters straight off the bat are relatively conservative in their value systems, right? They're relatively religious. So for them, if you say a vote for a Democrat is a vote for abortion, that's not appealing for a Hispanic voter. Same thing, if you say a vote for a Democrat is a vote for LGBTQ rights, a lot of traditional Hispanics don't support LGBTQ rights. So I think that the Democratic Party kind of like, you know, put themselves into a corner where they branded themselves as a party mm -hmm. and then said, oh, we're definitely getting the Hispanic vote because they're a minority, but not all minorities have the same value system. So now they're ignoring all these other policy points that Hispanics have in their mind, these social issues. And because the Democrats made these social issues the reason to vote for them, mm. you're losing the Hispanic vote, right? Because if you're saying every single Democratic candidate, by the way, every single candidate said, I am the pro-abortion candidate, right? I am the pro-choice candidate. How do you expect a Hispanic conservative voter, a religious voter, right. to then openly and proudly cast their vote for you? And I think that that's the issue when you start making these, um, you know, these points, your main policy points, as opposed to focusing more inwards on the needs of your community. Mm -hmm. 
That's so interesting. I never thought about it that way. They, what you're saying, what you're saying is, if I understand correctly, is in their effort to be tolerant and accepting of everybody, they box people out because yeah. you're creating such a, a loose um, set of morals or, or grounds because you're accepting of everybody and everything that people who don't necessarily subscribe to certain niches of ideology are they they fundamentally can't vote for you they fundamentally can't subscribe to your uh policy proposals yeah 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 i I think i think you said it really well there it's it's something that i think has been um really divisive and now it's starting to catch up especially to the left where they're going to lose key demographics because of their their branding because they said we are the party of xyz you're losing people who aren't on board with xyz right and um, you know all this has me thinking about well what is democracy right let's go back to the purpose of joe biden's speech if the purpose of this speech ahead of midterm elections was to talk about democracy then the preservation of democracy it goes back to what i was saying before is he talking to republicans or is he talking to democrats is this a call to action if he's reprimanding Republicans or is he trying to prepare Democrats for the possibility that they might have lost this one? Huh. Wow. Yeah. And that just takes me to the power of participation, right? Because it doesn't matter what the purpose of Joe Biden's speech was. I agree that democracy is on the ballot. And for me, democracy is the opportunity to voice your opinion. It's the opportunity to cast your vote. It's an opportunity that I personally don't have yet in this country, and I'm dying for the right to be able to actually speak my mind, voice my concerns, and have my vote be counted, personally. And for everyone else here, they should go and take that power of participation. You should feel so proud to live in this country. Don't look at it fatalistically, saying democracy's at stake. Say, hey, I have democracy. Let me use it. You know, what, what are your thoughts on this? There's there's two major observations for me uh, from the past couple of months. You can even say past couple of years and just observing this new system that I'm lucky to participate in. Um, one is we are treading into somewhat uncivility in American politics. And what I mean by that is I've, I'm very familiar with the Middle East. Obviously, my job is very Middle East focused. I'm used to Iraqis throwing chairs at each other in the parliament. I'm used to Jordanians punching each other in the parliament. I'm used to lack of civility within the political realm. Um, And it's it's like kind of second nature to me. So when I see it, it doesn't really, uh, there's no shock value. But when it happens in the American system, which has been happening a lot more recently, there is definitely a shock value. And I feel like we're letting things bleed into each other. We're letting uncivility read into each other. One of, the, one of my favorite things about America, among many, is that no matter what, we could disagree on anything and we could still agree on being American. We can still agree on loving this country. We can still agree that we'll fight shoulder to shoulder for democracy, for this amazing, beautiful experiment that we've built. And I'm, I'm just seeing that crumble a little, a little bit. And it's very uncomfortable because um, I came here seeking refugee. My family came here seeking refugee. So to see that crumble, I'm not really sure how to, how to digest it. If, to, if I'm able to digest it, what can I do as an now American to help save this thing um, that I love so dearly? 
Um, and I don't really have an answer. Maybe an expert can have an answer for us. But um, the second point is there was a former president, Barack Obama, was at a rally a couple of days ago and he was getting heckled to, to my point of there's lack of civility. Um, and this guy was just like heckling him like it was a stand up comedy show or something. And Obama just looks at him and just says, don't boo, vote. Um, mm. And that's the note I want to end on. Don't boo, vote, go out, make your voice heard, use use your feet, use your vote to to tell the system what you want. A hundred percent. Use your vote. Don't boo vote. I'll be here doing all the booing because I can't <laughs> vote. So I will boo. You guys go vote because again, not everyone has that power and privilege. And when you have it, you have to use it. Don't boo vote. And in my case, boo, make a <laughs> podcast about it and tell other people to vote. Boo until you can vote. How about that? Boo until you can. I, yep. Amen. Amen. <laughs> awesome. See you guys next week. See you guys next week.